I think if we named our services, we'd call this one the sauna. I just get, I guess if I get that fan out of your office and just put it on stage and be like, be like a rock video. Be all, so everybody. Um, so if you don't know, all of our, there's a bunch of kids out there, and they're getting ready to go down to do a missions trip. So we'd appreciate if you guys kept them in mind this week, as hopefully you spent some time with God this week, reading the scriptures and praying. Pray for them as well uh, for a lot of heart change, that God would also keep them safe, uh, and that as they come back, they'd have great stories to tell of how they are part of God's story and what he is doing. So it'd be great if you guys remember that. Yay! So, you know what's really funny? I, I don't know. I got extra time because there's nothing after you, so I'll just talk about this. So my birthday was like a week and a half ago, and one of my friends, Manette Shaver, it's always funny because uh, I always say how cool Manette is. Well, she gave me this gigantic tub of cookie dough, not like that stuff you get at Costco that you bake it and it tastes like you're eating a rock, you know, but the Pillsbury stuff, the really good one. And so, and so I'm just you know, trying to be green, and I'm not you know, wasting energy, so I just eat it right out of the tub. So it's like, man, I, I really, I'm really jonesing for something. Yeah. I'm really, I'm jonesing for something like really good. And so I'll sit down, I'll just take a big old scoop of that and sit there like at the couch and be all, oh, that's great. And then someone said, oh, don't do that. You can get like, so, or whatever. <laughs> and you wonder, so you eat chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. It's not cooked in there. <laughs> whatever. Not everybody knows that. And honestly, I don't care. It'll be like that new show, The Strain. I got little worms digging out of me. I'll be like, oh, it was good going down, though. That's all that matters. Uh, baptisms are in about a month. And if you are interested in being baptized and you, you haven't been or you would like to be, and you have more questions about it, uh, one of the things that Jesus says that we should do as believers is be baptized. It doesn't make us, you know, better Christians. But what it does, it's a covenant between us and each other and us and God. And so we do baptisms periodically and we would love to baptize you. So if you'd like to do that, you have questions about it, sign up at the Welcome Center in the back and uh, we will get in touch with you. Uh, welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. There's also Bibles apparently under the chairs in front of you. I freaked out a couple weeks ago because there's one Bible in the back. And I'm like, there's just one Bible. What are we doing? And then I was told that they're actually under the chairs. I don't normally sit in the chairs. So apparently they're under the chairs too. So if you, if you want to buy one and you don't have one, that's why they're there. We'd love for you to take one home and read it and, and check it out. If you forgot one, you can also use one. There's also sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. And in those sermon notes, you'll get a little extra things other than what I talked about this morning. There's questions on the back that you can talk to your gospel community about or your family about or some of your friends about. And maybe go a little bit deeper uh, from the message. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone, you'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with today's message. So stand with me, reading God's word. We'll get started. It says Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who would seek first you and your righteousness and what you call in us. That we would be able to take everything around us and lay it aside and focus on you first and foremost. And when doubts and worries and anxieties come and it rears its ugly head, it wouldn't be as bad because our focus is first and foremost upon you and your kingdom and your righteousness and your glory and not our own. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so today in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to jump a little bit. We're going to go to a section I think that if we're all honest, we can relate to. And this is a difference between faith and doubt and worry and anxiety. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And if you've been here for the Sermon on the Mount, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, you just skipped 21 verses. Yes, I did. Okay, but we're going to come back to those. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do this more focused thing where all of element, we're going to spend four weeks on prayer and four weeks on treasure, bringing this all together. Uh, we're going to talk about what the future of element looks like, and so we want you to be prepared for that and kind of do it all together. So we will come back to that. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to talk about faith and doubt, uh, worry and anxiety, because in our world, there's a lot of things that look bad today. Uh, we have this jobless rate that goes up and down and up and down and up and down, and even when it's up, the, the jobs aren't actually paying that well. Uh, the government, whether you're for or against whatever they're doing, it all just causes trepidation and a little bit of worry. I read a statistic recently that every year there's about 100 new reality shows that come out. That gives me some anxiety and trepidation right there. It can be scary. Now, if you look at the book of Romans, Paul speaks about people in the midst of persecution. And what he says in Romans 12, 12 is rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And so that's what a people of God are to look like. But many case, times it's not the case in how we actually live our lives. Because it's hard sometimes to trust God. We don't see the entire, we don't see everything that's going on. We have our tiny little microcosm of our world and what we see coming at us. And that's all that we get. So we run around really fearful a lot. And so sometimes when people say, well, look at the scriptures and just trust Jesus and, and everything's going to be okay. Sometimes if you're like me, you would think, well, if Jesus stood right here next to me, and the new reality show came on, and he went, boom, it's over. I'd be like, well, sweet, that's what I need. I just need Jesus to stand next to me and walk through everything with me. Then everything would be okay, and I wouldn't have any more worries. But that's not how it works. Uh, when I wrote this message the night before, one of my friends packed up his family, and he had to move houses because he's trying to cut expenses. So it's either closing his business or he had to find a cheaper place to rent to live in. And so he gets to his new house. He's had many conversations with this guy. He shows up, walks in the door, and it smells like wet dog before he's three steps into the house. Five fleas have jumped onto his leg, and he's got a brand new baby. And so he doesn't know what to do. He's like, give my baby in there. So he takes you know, the baby and his family, and he goes and rents a hotel room, which is not in his budget. And so the next day we're talking about this. And he said, you know what? I, I'm trusting God. I have peace in who he is. But really, sometimes I don't know why it always seems to be so hard. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life. Maybe not that, but something like that. So we're going to do in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. We're going to walk through this. We're going to read the entire section. Then we'll talk about it. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? So do the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
So he starts with, don't be anxious about your life. Verse 34, next week, he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow because every day has enough trouble of its own. And through all of this, he's talking about this worry and doubt and anxiety. Do not be anxious about your life. Now, to an American culture like us, we are very vocal and we're also very cynical. And if Jesus were here and he said, you know, these words, you know, like, don't worry, be happy. You know, many of us would raise our hands and we would say, well, excuse me, Rabbi, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Bobby McFerrin one day is going to write a song about that and it'll be all wonderful and great. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's easy to say it, but it's really hard to live. And a rabbi would say to you, because rabbis love to ask questions, and they would say, well, why are you worried? They would look, look and put the question back at you. And that's kind of what Jesus does in the text. Because he started with the idea of the, of the blessedness of the kingdom of God, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And he walks through this entire section of the passage and gets to this point now, and he's like, so why do you worry so much? Why do you freak out? And even in that, we would still tell them about our journey, like my friend's house hunting and the fleas and all that. I talk about my other friend's cancer, who's at UCLA right now, going through cancer treatment. Uh, maybe your kid's making some terrible mistakes. I hear Sync is planning a reunion tour. And I'd be like, I got some issues with that. And so we would say, it's easy to say, don't worry until you have something to worry about. I think that's true for a lot of us. You know, maybe you have lost your job or you're going to lose your job and you're looking for another one. Maybe you're going through some really hard stuff at home and you contemplate divorce and if the marriage is going to make it. Maybe something's happened in your life that causes you great anxiety and worry. You're saying, but, 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 but. And Jesus would say, wait a minute. You've got to let me finish because it's not just platitudes. It's not just don't worry. It's the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And he says, is, life not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Again, asking the question. Eating and drinking and clothing. Now, we know some of you don't worry about what you wear. It's evident. You know, we, we, can, we can see. But Jesus starts with food and clothing because those are the basic essentials of life. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, open your Bibles to Psalm 55, verse 4. And this is the idea. This verse would kind of be what the Jews would have heard in their minds when Jesus spoke about the birds of the air and being taken care of and not really worrying about anything. Because I don't know if you've ever watched a bird. Again, not to shoot it with a BB gun, but actually watch, watch a bird. They don't really care about a whole lot. They just kind of do their thing. Psalm 55, verse 4, the psalm writer says this. My heart is anguished within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. So he's going through some anxiety and some trouble. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Because the birds don't toil, the birds don't spin, they don't worry about all of these things. When anguish comes upon us, our first response is flight. We want to get away. Jesus reminds these people, this is the verse you're thinking of, but you must understand, the birds don't store up and worry about all this because they are in the hands of God. And you are of more value than they. He says God's going to take care of you even when you're facing something that you don't know the end of. You don't know the front side from the back side and what it looks like. When you see a bird, you think of God who takes care of that, he will take care of you. And then Jesus would say, which of you are being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Uh, in the Luke rendering, it says, or a single cubit to his height. Can anybody, by worrying, make themselves taller? Anybody short, right? Does it make you taller worrying about it? Nope, you just got to live with being short. Although I did talk to one guy after first service, and he said, I was really worried when I was littler, and he's like 6'5 now. I'm like, oh, maybe I was wrong. I don't know, you know. <laughs> 
No, if you're short, you just accept it. Worrying doesn't have time to your life. Fix the problem right inches to your height. So Jesus makes these therefore statements. So God feeds the birds. He'll feed you. God clothes the flowers of the field. He'll clothe you. Then he hits the core of the issue. He says, oh, you of little faith. And this is really the biggest problem with worry and anxiety is it comes down to a lack of faith. And you have to also understand, you know, the lack of faith is something we all go through. Everybody has doubts. I mean, I have spent at this point the majority of my life reading, studying, figuring out who Jesus is, following him, loving him, praying to him, trying to live my life in such a way that it brings him glory and honor. And I will still tell you one day when I see him face to face, I'll be like, oh, thank God. You know, I, I st- I'll be like, yeah, you know, oh, you know, just a little bit. In there, because I'll tell you, you know, faith and doubt come in unexpected places and unexpected ways. Uh, I read a story of a guy who has ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And when you're diagnosed with ALS, you get two to five years to live. That's it. The government actually has one drug that's approved for ALS, and it will extend your life three months. That's it. And so what happens is this guy is so torn up by what he has, he, fought, he goes and he, and he gives his life to Jesus. He surrenders everything to him. He actually only lived nine months, but he gave everything in his life to follow Jesus, tells everybody about this faith that had found him, that he's following Jesus. His dad, who was an atheist, actually started to follow Jesus. And, and what's really interesting in all this is I don't know why in some people tragedies destroy their faith, and for other people it gives birth to it. But it's this unexpected places and unexpected ways and all of these things that happen. Because there are people who will only think you're reasonable if you don't have faith. And there's other people who only think you're reasonable if you do have faith. And I think what Jesus is saying is in order to have real faith, we must be willing to follow where it leads. To all of the hard places. Because at times, doubt in the middle of it may even be good for your growth. Because how will you ever learn to wrestle through things? Dostoevsky, who was a believer, wrote this. The death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. Elie Wiesel was spent World War II in a concentration camp. On his first night of being in the concentration camp, he writes of a wagon load of babies that were driven up and thrown into a ditch of fire. And this is what he writes. Never shall I forget the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. You and I today, we live in what's called a global news cycle. We see everything that takes place the instant that it happens. And we can respond a lot like Elliot Wassell. We can be like, well, what's going on? I don't see what God's doing. And we can overwhelm us. How are we going to respond right or wrong to what comes at us? Philosopher Andre Comte-Sponville, he's an atheist, and he talks about the beauty of humility. And he talks about how kneeling in churches is such a beautiful thing, but he says he would never do it because that means he'd have to believe in a God who created him and human beings are way too wretched for him to ever permit that possibility. And in Christianity, we believe part of that, that humanity is wretched. We are, God created us with dignity and grace and honor and hope and we threw it all away. And yet in our wretchedness, that's where Jesus comes to save us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He comes to save us. I mean, faith, for the birth of every infant, it's like hope. It's God's going to write another story on this little one. But for some, the death of every infant calls his existence into question. And it all determines, I think, where our focus is because we all have the same information to deal with. We just process differently. Some process focused on themselves. Oh, what is this doing to me? How is this affecting me? What's going on with me? Others process outside themselves. Well, what is God going to do in the midst of this? I may not get it, but I know that God is going to do something. I think it's why Jesus keeps coming back in the Sermon on the Mount to these ideas. You were made to be a blessed creature. 
you were made that way. You've thrown it away, but God is extending himself to you. And he, he says, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God so clothes the grass of the field, which stays alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, a faith in God is not a faith controlled by anxiousness or worry or doubt. It's a faith in spite of all of those things. Billy Graham was asked when he sees Jesus, if Jesus will say, will say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, I think if we could take a vote and if Jesus would say that to anybody, he'd say it to Billy Graham. All right? But so they asked Billy Graham, and what's Billy Graham's response? He's like, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, that's, that's his response. An elderly woman asked Martin Luther, the reformer, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther about faith and doubt that she has. And so he says to her, tell me, when you recite the creeds, do you believe them? And she says, yes, most certainly. And his response to her, Martin Luther, you know, the guy who kind of starts the Reformation in the Protestant church, he says, then go in peace. You believe more and better than I. Eli Wassell, when asked about his faith, describes it as wounded. He says, my tradition teaches that no heart is as whole as a broken heart. And I would say that no faith is as solid as a wounded faith. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, that's the idea. Too many people think if we're just smart enough, we can get past all the issues that plague us with worry and doubt. You might have heard this story. There's like, you know, three people on a plane, a pilot, a boy scout, and the smartest man in the world. No idea how the smartest man in the world would end up on that plane, but whatever. The plane takes off. One engine fails, and the other engine fails, and the plane's going down. There's only two parachutes. So the smartest man in the world grabs a parachute and jumps out the door going, hey, I'm the smartest man in the world. I have a responsibility to the planet, so i got to be okay. And he, and he jumps out. And the pilot looks at the little boy scout, and he's all, here, take the other parachute. He said, you got your whole life in front of you, so why don't you go? And the Boy Scout goes, oh, no, no, that's okay. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. <laughs> and this is the deal. You know, our world is full of people, really smart, jumping out of planes with backpacks because they cannot understand the paradox of faith and doubt and worry and anxiety. It's a great intellectual challenge. I think it's why simple people can live with greater wisdom than someone who has a Ph.D. and chooses folly. It's why I think a couple who simply chooses to love each other, and they don't read all the magazines about the ten things you can do to please her or please him, and all the movies and the books and all the TV shows, and they simply just love each other and serve each other first and get rid of all that garbage. I think that they can have a better marriage than someone who's got a Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy. Because it's about a simple faith and love and trust. And so when Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, it's not anger. It's gentle chastisement. Because it's not doubt that I think he's combating. It's unbelief. See, lack of trust in who God is and what he's doing is a sign of unbelief. But doubt about what God is doing and still trusting him is a sign of faith. Are you willing to trust God who feeds the birds and clothes the grass? Are you going to trust him or are you going to trust you? The issue is who will you trust? And I will tell you, for me personally, there are days when I trust God in everything. I am not worried about the future. I believe him in all my moments. And those times, I'll tell you, God's peace just pervades my life. There are other times when I worry about everything. I worry about my future and my country's future, my family's future, and Element's future, and what we're going to do in a couple of years when we've got to be out of this building, and then your future, it begins to overwhelm me. And, but most of the time, I live right in the middle of those two things, where I've got the one and the other, and they kind of come together, and they overlap with each other. Nicholas Wolsterstorff, he's a Yale philosopher. He had his son, uh, his son died while his son was climbing a mountain. And so he struggles with doubt and unanswered questions. In the end, he comes out with a faith that's stronger than ever. But he writes this, I cannot fit it all together by saying he did it, like God 
made, made him fall. But neither can I do so by saying there is nothing he could do about it. I cannot fit it all together at all. I have read theosities produced to justify the way of God to man. I find them unconvincing. To the most agonized question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. My wound is an unanswered question. The wounds of all humanity are an unanswered question. But he says it doesn't mean there isn't an answer to the question. He just doesn't know it yet. Martin Luther wrote, Faith is a free surrender and a joyous wager on the unseen, unknown, untested goodness of God. And people will say, in the midst of doubts, they'll say, well, just trust God. And I'm thinking, what do you think we're trying to do? You know, Just read the Bible and trust about, right, what do you think we're, we're trying to do? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus, as a rabbi, what he says is essentially three things. Number one is that anxiousness is a lack of faith, but it's not a deal breaker. It's not a deal breaker. It's something that can actually make your faith stronger when rightly understood. Secondly, anxiousness is a confused priority. This is why he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All the things you need to exist, it's not about money, it's about your life being taken care of in the hands of God, you will be taken care of in the hands of God. Seek above all else God's kingdom. Uh, The guy I was talking about that had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, he talked about how when he gets up in the morning and he's focused, he's obsessed with the kingdom of God and who Jesus is, he doesn't worry about what muscle works and what muscle isn't going to work that day. He says when he finds he's obsessed with Jesus, he doesn't worry about his life and his future because he's seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. I think the third thing that Jesus says is anxiousness is a lack of focus, which kind of goes back to where we started. If you're constantly thinking and worrying about tomorrow, you'll fail to live today as God intended to the glory of God. And this is one of the reasons today I think the Internet is a blessing and a curse. Because when something is wrong, you got a disease or a pain or unexpected things happens, you can run to like a thousand different websites and they'll give you a thousand different opinions and none of it makes sense and you don't know what to do and you just freak out more than ever and you get really depressed. You know, what Jesus says is your focus is all off. Your focus is first and foremost to be the kingdom of God. Jesus reminds us as long as we live in tomorrow, what could be, what might be, we will never live the life today that he intends. I mean, we honestly need at times to give ourselves a five-minute timeout. And remember that God is who he is and what he said he will bring to pass. He has been faithful through all of eternity. In Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, 5 and 6 it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I mean, this is the idea. We, we struggle so hard to hold on to our money and our stuff as if that's going to give us security. And it doesn't. It's all temporary. We're going to be people who say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. You may be in the midst of a horrible anxiety and just you'd be like that. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And you know what? It probably may, won't make a lick of difference. You'd be like, oh, I'm still worried and afraid. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. And you won't understand a word you're saying. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. But the more that you understand that, the more it gets deeper down inside of you, I think that anxiousness and that worry will start to lessen because you'll be able to start focusing on the kingdom of God first and foremost. You'll be able to get to a place where you're not as afraid as you were before. You may still have fear, but you focus first on God's kingdom. In Mark 4, 37 to 39, Jesus is taking his disciples across the lake. He's had a really tough day. 
And so he falls asleep in the stern of the ship, and this huge storm comes up. And it starts buffeting the ship all over the place. Uh, the, his disciples, who are seasoned fishermen, you know, are freaked out that they're going to die. They're like, what are we going to do? The storm is really bad. So it must have been really bad. And they go wake up Jesus, and they say, don't you care if we drown? And in verse 39 of chapter 4 of Burke and Mark, Jesus says he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and said, be quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now, the word there for quiet, it's the word that means hush. It means the inability to speak or make noise. I think it's a subtle reminder when our lives become so hectic, so buffeted by all these wind and these waves, sometimes God forces us to be still. Sometimes God removes everything from us. We're like, oh, these things are out of my hands. Oh, I don't, ah. And God's like, this is exactly where you need to be. Everything needs to be taken out of your hands because you just focus on those things. You need to focus first on the kingdom of God. See, Jesus doesn't say, if you follow me, you'll never have any problems. One writer says about this verse in Mark, peace doesn't come from finding a lake with no storms. It comes from having Jesus in the boat. That's what it comes from. And let me just say something. Having said all that, I'll try and bring you a little bit of comfort. Uh, Everybody worries, okay? Everybody gets anxiety. Everybody has doubts. And I know you think you might do it so much, it should be your, like, Olympic sport. I'll get a gold medal in worrying. That's me. And maybe you can't remember the last time you weren't worried. And when you find yourself not worrying about something, you worry there should be something you should be worrying about. So you worry about to figure out what you need to be worrying about. Sometimes you hear messages like this about worry and anxiety, and they do more harm than good because what you take away is, oh, I shouldn't worry so much. I guess don't trust God enough, then you worry about how much you worry. I know, it's crazy, right? It happens, it happens. Now, some people will tell you, if you were just closer to God, well, you wouldn't worry as much as you do. And in one sense, that might actually be true if your focus is in the right spot. But on the other side of that, science actually shows that about 15 to 20% of human beings actually are just prone to anxiety and worry more than other people. I mean, I mean, right out of the chute, right out of birth, they're just, they're just prone to it. They're finicky about new foods. They're reluctant about new places. They're shy around strangers. From birth, they've shown that their hearts beat a little bit faster in new situations. And they actually show that all mammals over the entire animal kingdom, they all experience that, about 15%. Uh, even cats, imagine that. The same proportion as cats as human beings are prone to timidity. Some are, you know, less curious. Some are less likely to go to new territories. Some will only kill smaller rodents. About 15% of cats are anxious. I mean, do you think that's a spiritual problem? Are are cats simply not close enough to God? They're not. Could be their issue. I don't know. I think sometimes people who wrestle with deep anxiety and deep worry can be some of the most courageous people in the world. And so if you wrestle with chronic worry, don't compare yourself to someone who doesn't wrestle with it. You know, don't waste time feeling guilty about it. Guilt does nothing to alleviate your worry or anxiety or do anything for it. And if you don't wrestle with it, don't judge somebody who does. Only God fully understands how he wired us and how he made us. But I think our focus is in the right place to begin to make that a little bit better. So how do you begin to grow out of your doubts and your anxiety? And this isn't platitudes. This is biblical truth. You start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And understand the blessing that first comes from God. And understand that love begins to cast out fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Paul said that God's spirit doesn't make us timid. It gives us power and it gives us love. And, the only, and that's not the only place in the Bible where you see it talk about this, receiving love and power from God's Spirit. Uh, John makes the same connections. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Living with our focus in the kingdom of God first, and in God's Spirit means we let that perfect love of God wash over us as it begins to drive out our fears. And this intimacy with, with God is not one more thing that God wants you to worry about in your life. 
I think God's spirit will come and it will help us begin to understand to let love cast out fear when we begin to focus on the kingdom of God. Scripture promises, Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God literally means the peace that God himself has. The serenity that characterizes God's character. That peace will guard your hearts and minds. And that word guard, it's actually a military term. It's the word the ancient Greeks would use for soldiers who would guard and protect a city. And the promise is God's kingdom, live in that. He will stand guard over your hearts and over your minds. It's not just trying harder to believe. It's about understanding what Jesus said through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. We begin to pray to him. We lay it at his feet. We put off worry. We put on peace. This is one of the reasons I think prayer is probably the single most fundamental discipline when it comes to putting off anxiety and putting on the peace of God. We turn every concern over to God. We focus on him first. And in that, then we begin to live the rest of our life. I think that's the part that we play in allowing God's peace to guard our mind. Now, typically what I'll do is I go over uh, messages that I've done in the past, in case there's something I want to bring back up that I want you guys to forget. And I came across this really good story that I told you guys a couple years ago. Uh, John Ortberg tells us about how when his daughters were five and three years old, they're on vacation, they're at a hotel, and so they're down at the pool, down at the, at the bottom of their hotel. And his little girls are running around the pool when it's all wet, and he goes, hey, hey. He goes, stop running, stop jumping, you're going to slip, bump your head, fall in the water, and you'll drown, you'll die. It will not be a good thing. And so his little girl goes, oh, okay, like little kids, right? Nobody listens. And so they're running around the pool, woo, and what's sure enough, one of his daughters, boom, 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 in the water. And he walks over, and he grabs her, and he pulls her out of the water, and she's like, oh, daddy, oh, daddy, I drowned, I drowned. And he's like, no, you didn't drown. You weren't even close. So let's not tell your mom about this. You know? <laughs> Because she wouldn't understand, you know, what I know. And what does he know? That your father is watching you the entire time. And the moment you slipped, that was so scary for you. When you thought it was just all over, your father was plenty strong enough to grab you and pull you out of the water. And you're right there in his arms, perfectly safe, more alive than ever. And that is not just good news. That is true news. You may slip. God's hands will have you. We trust God's peace. Nothing can take you from the arms of the father. I mean, you and I, we, we live our lives in such a way that we are always tending to slip and fall and bonk our heads and fall into this pool called anxiety and doubt and sin, and we're always falling in it. And God is like, boom, I got you. I'm a strong father. I have you. I will pull you out. We must be a people who live and trust those blessings of God that have been given to us to live and walk in those things. It's why Jesus takes so long in the Sermon on the Mount to even begin to talk about worry and anxiety because he sets the basis and the stage for who God is first. This is who he is. This is who you trust. We don't trust us. We trust him. Because our Father is more than capable of lifting us out of the pit that we've dug for ourselves. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. That you and I are just digging a pit deeper and deeper. And our God comes in the person of Christ to pay for our sin, to lift us out of that pit and hold us safe in his arms because he is the only one that we can trust. He's the only one that is trustworthy and will follow through. This is why we talk about communion every week. It's a place to remind us and reset our focus. It's where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine and the grape juice. It's remembrance that his blood was shed to pull us out of that pool and hold us safe in his arms. And nothing can pull it out of his arms again. He holds us safe. Our Father 
is a strong and gracious father. He knows the hairs on every single one of your heads. Some are easier to count than others, I know. Okay. But, but he knows every single one of them. That's how much he cares. That's how trustworthy he is, that he knows you better than you probably know yourself. And so when you have anxiousness and worry, I'm not saying it all just goes away. But I'm saying if you take the time to turn and focus on who he is and the promises he has made and you trust him first in that, all those things will begin to diminish because you will see that he is greater than stronger than anything you can go through in your life. Uh, the band's going to come up. And as they do, we're going to invite you guys to take communion. Uh, and there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And maybe if, if you're in a place where you have a lot of anxiety and you have a lot of worry and you, and you have a lot of doubts, you know, maybe you could go in and pray with them this morning. You know, there's no better day than today, you know, to worship Jesus. Could you grab that for me? Uh, you know, turn your life over to who Christ is. Um, I would also say if you're going through something and you don't, you don't understand, you know, maybe what you're going through, uh, they'd also love to pray with you about that. I mean, maybe you're in a position where you're just thinking, I don't know one end from the other. I don't know what's up and what's down. I don't know what to do. They would love to pray with you about that as well because in the midst of that, we become this people who first and foremost focus on who God is first. He has first loved us. That's the place where it starts. He has first blessed us. That's the place where it starts. He has come to save us, and we live in that grace and that hope. Um, there's offering box on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, giving is simply part of our worship. Uh, so we offer that opportunity every single plate. It is uh, simply a uh, response to what God's doing in us. And there's uh, food and stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. Uh, maybe meet somebody new. Grab some of the sermon notes and the questions on the back and maybe talk through those. If you're not in the gospel community, we encourage you to, to get in one and talk through those things with some other people who are walking through those same issues as you. Because what's great about the gospel is that God intends for us to do life together. He doesn't just say, okay, I save you when it's just that. It's, it's that he puts us in community with one another. And so we begin to live this life with each other, walking through it with each other. It's grace, it's redemption, it's hope, it's the beauty of the gospel. That he not only restores the relationship between us and him, but also us and each other. So we can live and walk as he calls us to. A people fully surrendered in him, to him, understanding his kingdom and living and walking in the goodness of who he is. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people and help us to begin to understand your graciousness and your goodness. That though sometimes, many times, we fret and we worry, we would know that you have us, that your spirit would speak strongly to our hearts and our souls and our minds that you never once have let us go. And when we don't understand and we don't see the beginning from the end, you do. You see all of eternity as a finished event. Nothing surprises you. And so we can trust the beginning from the end That sometimes when our feelings want to drag us away into places that we should not be, we remember 
that our great God is deemed to save us and to love us. And we would see that, and that would in turn change our lives so we wouldn't be so worried simply about ourselves, but we would begin to live a life that lifts you up in what we say and what we do, that the world around us would know who you are by the faith that we have in you. That we wouldn't run. We would rest in the arms of our gracious Father who has sought us and bought us and loved us. Teach us to trust you. We ask this in your son's good name.